Connecting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Katani. And I'm Diana O'Carroll. I'm going to kick off this week with the discovery of all the history about Asian monsoons. Researchers this week have presented for the first time a record of ancient monsoon data stretching over 700 years. The Asian monsoon affects nearly 5 billion people each year, but it involves a huge weather system and it's very hard to predict how it will change each year. Until now, there's been very little climate data available on the monsoon. So... Who's this doing this and what have they done? Well, it's Edward Cook and colleagues from Columbia University and they've measured tree ring data from over 300 locations, that's a lot of drilling, and they've compiled it into what they call the Monsoon Data Drought Atlas, or MADA. And it's published in the journal Science and they've been able to reconstruct how the monsoon varied from the end of the medieval warm period through the Little Ice Age, where Louis XIV's wine supposedly froze on his table, and during the more recent period of human-induced climate change. Well, that's a lot of data, but what can they do with it? What can it tell us? Well, the researchers plan to compare this record with others available, so they could, for example, see how sea surface temperatures alter the monsoons, and occasionally the monsoon will fail completely, leading to droughts which destroy crops and cause all sorts of species devastation. So finding the reasons for these events could help in their prediction in the near future good stuff and maybe the scientists would find it more useful to understand their data if they slept on it. Now have you ever found the advice to sleep on it often turns out to be true whether it's solving a problem or trying to learn something. Now we've known for some time that sleep helps us to remember things by helping the brain to file away and strengthen our memories and now new research from Erin Wamsley at Harvard Medical School published in the journal Current Biology provides more evidence that the best way to remember something is indeed to sleep on it and, more importantly, to dream about it. So how has she found this? Well, she and her team asked 99 volunteers to memorise the layout of quite a complicated computer maze, and then they were tested to see if they could get to a specific place in the maze after being dropped in it at a random starting point. And five hours later, the volunteers were tested again. But in the interim, some of them had had a nap, but some of them had been made to stay awake. So what were the two differences that they found between these groups? Well, they found that the people who'd had about an hour and a half shut-eye in between the tests managed to get through the maze an average of around three minutes faster than the first time they were tested. But the people who stayed awake only managed about 26 seconds faster. Right, what's that got to do with dreaming, though? Well, as well as seeing whether the volunteers had had a nap or not, Wamsley also asked the nappers whether they dreamed about the maze, and she found that people who dreamed about doing the task during their nap improved in the second test far more than the people who didn't. So it suggests that dreaming is actually a really powerful mental rehearsal for a task. Well, that's interesting, because we all know that dreams are often really weird. I mean, I have dreams that I'm in my old house, but looking for a toilet usually. um, So how How does that help? Well, it's very true that your dreams aren't really an accurate reflection of reality. And in these experiments, the volunteers also had some pretty wacky dreams. Uh, For example, when the volunteers described their dreams, they didn't talk about the specific maze or specific things in the maze. But they mentioned similar but related situations. So, for example, a different maze or being stuck in something like a cave. And intriguingly, she found that the people who found the maze task most difficult were more likely to dream about it. So maybe their brains were kind of panicking, processing all the information and maybe even worrying about having to do the test again while they were asleep. 
So thinking about something while you're asleep is actually more efficient at helping you to remember than thinking about it while you're awake. Well, that's what this does seem to suggest, but it's important to point out the researchers don't think it's the actual dreams that are improving our memory. It's more like dreams are a side effect of the underlying brain process, the sort of filing away that goes on while we're asleep. But based on this research, you might actually draw the conclusion it's best to study right before you go to bed at night, or alternatively, have a nap after you've done a really hard revision session. Indeed, sleep is always the cure for everything. Well, um, here's a, another not quite related but perhaps related to learning news story. Uh, this week, researchers in an international team from Switzerland, the Czech Republic and the US have managed to measure the forces felt by a small pill as it travels through the intestines. Is this some kind of fantastic journey thing? Have they shrunk down? Uh, what on earth have they done? <laughs> Sounds like it, doesn't it? Well, it's um, Brian Laulicht and colleagues, and they've developed a technique using a dummy magnetic pill. And this was fed to both human and dogs, and they tracked its progress using an array of magnetic fields sensors held over the abdomen. Publishing in PNAS this week, not only could they detect the direction of gastric forces exerted on the pill, but also nice. the magnitude of those forces, and they could see how these changed through the stages of digestion. So, so what did they find? Well, they found that on a full stomach, both humans and dogs exerted similar gastric forces on the pill. But when both volunteers were fasted, the dog's innards exerted on average five times the force of the humans. So we now know that dogs' gastric systems are only similar to that of humans after they've been fed. Interesting why we might want to know that. Why do we need to know what happens to pills once you've eaten them? Well, it's, it's important because in order to make tablets as effective as possible, we need to know how long they can last uh, for inside the guts. So for some pills, at least, the longer they last inside you, the more effective they are at delivering their medicine. So the researchers hope that by modelling the gut forces in this way, they can design much more sophisticated pills than those currently on the market. Nice. I wish they'd work out why my parents' dogs keep being sick. <laughs> that would be very nice as well. Anyway, moving from uh, dog sick to stem cells. Uh, that's a really exciting area of science that we often do talk about on the show, mainly because I am a huge stem cell nerd. And now new research published in the journal Nature reports an important step forward in our understanding of stem cells and actually how we might be able to use them in the future. So what's this about then? Well, this is work from Comrade Hockedlinger at Harvard and his colleagues, and they've been trying to understand the difference between cells known as pluripotent stem cells, and these are stem cells that can make a limited number of different types of cells in the body, and embryonic stem cells. These can be converted into any of the 220 different types of cells in the body. Now, although these cells have the same genes, only certain sets of genes can actually be used in pluripotent stem cells and this explains why they have a limited potential to turn into different cells. And cloning experiments have shown that a single embryonic stem cell can be used to clone and create a whole new organism but it hasn't so far been done with pluripotent stem cells. So what did the researchers do? Well, they compared mouse embryonic stem cells with identical, genetically identical pluripotent stem cells to look for key differences in the patterns of gene activity between the two. Now, importantly, they found that a cluster of genes on chromosome 12 were switched off in the pluripotent stem cells, but not in the embryonic stem cells. And this region contains uh, quite a lot of genes that are very important for the development of the fetus of the baby. But how do they know that these genes are really important? Well, they looked at over 60 different pluripotent cell lines, that's 
different types of pluripotent cells and they found that the same genes were switched off in most of them, suggesting that they are really important in this. And when they tested whether they could regenerate cloned mice from these pluripotent stem cells, they could only make them from the tiny handful of pluripotent cells where these genes weren't switched off. So in fact this is the first time, uh, thought to be the first time, that you've actually been able to clone mice using these pluripotent stem cells because they haven't switched off these crucial genes. Well, that's quite impressive, but what does this finding mean for stem cell research in general? Well, I think it's actually quite important. For a start, it allows researchers to tell whether the cells they're dealing with have the potential to generate every different cell type in the body or just a limited range. And this is going to become increasingly important in the future as stem cell technology comes closer to being able to be used in medical applications. Doctors need to be able to choose the best quality stem cells for the job. And it also tells us how to change the properties of stem cells, whether you actually want them to to have a more restricted fate and switch certain genes off in this case, or whether you actually want to try and reactivate these genes so you have stem cells that could make any type of cells. So really interesting stuff, I think, there. Yeah, very potent bit of research there. Yeah. Also in the news this week, a new genetic analysis of nearly 2,000 people from all over the globe suggests that our ancestors interbred with Neanderthals on at least two occasions. We're joined by Professor Geoffrey Long, leader of the team at the University of New Mexico, who have reported on this finding. Good morning. What we looked at were genotypes, genetic typings from about 600 places throughout the genome from people from about 100 different populations throughout the world. And what did you look at in in their DNA? Well, we looked at subtle variations that are sometimes called microsatellite loci or short tandem repeat loci. And these are just regions of DNA Typically, they don't code for any products. They're sometimes called junk DNA, where people have small differences in the amount of DNA that they have. These are the kinds of genetic markers that are used in DNA fingerprinting and forensics and parentage testing and a lot of routine tests these days. So do we know if the microsatellites actually do anything? There are a few circumstances where they do. Most uh, notably, there's a microsatellite type of locus in the gene that is important for Huntington's disease. But there are only a couple dozen of those um, where they're actually in genes that do anything. Uh, There are thousands of them throughout the genome, and uh, most of them, the vast majority of them, don't do anything. So when you looked at these microsatellites, what sorts of genetic variations did you see? What we saw when we looked at these microsatellites is that people typically, and this is standard for genetics, people typically have different amounts of DNA at each of these these locations. And they have more or less high mutation rates, by genetic standards at least. And because of that, we have all of these variations and you get clustering of patterns throughout the world. And that's what we started looking at in, in this study. We were interested in a model that's called the serial founder effects model. And with serial founder effects, what we've postulated is that other groups have postulated that uh, you had an original population in Africa and then a small group left Africa and peopled Europe and Asia and eventually into Asia and the um, Oceania as well. We were uh, interested in studying that effect. So how did you find these clusters of variation varied geographically as well? Did they tie in with these models? Well, for the most part, what we found was that what you find outside of Africa is a subset of what you find in Africa, what you find 
in the, say, any region outside of Africa. Asia is a subset of all about Africa and the like. But the thing that surprised us was that in the out-of-Africa group, there was a little bit more variation than the model could account for. So we found variation in Eurasians, people in the Pacific Islands and the Americas that couldn't be accounted for by the out-of-Africa migration. So you think this genetic information is, is coming from somewhere else? Yes. So we had to look at possibilities of, of where it could come from and what could account for it. Now, one of the things that our colleagues suggested to us is that it might be just by what we call gene flow, which is sort of the boy marries girl next door effect that goes on throughout the world where people in these different regions do occasionally mate with each other. But that couldn't account for the effect. And in retrospect, it really could not have because that sort of gene flow just, um, it just uh, spreads things around. It doesn't create or, or destroy variation itself. And then what we eventually came to the conclusion of is that what it had to have been from essentially hominids that were like people that were existing in this area, or at least we think that's the best explanation at this time. So one possibility would be Neanderthals. And if it was, what does that mean for human populations? Well, Neanderthals are certainly a possibility, but there were many different sorts of archaic people around the world before we got the modern Homo sapiens evolving. But the main implication of this is that for the last uh, one or two decades, we really believed that once Homo sapiens evolved, they replaced all of these people around the world and did, didn't mate with them or incorporate any of their, their genes. But it was a very rigid speciation event. And what this is telling us is that our closest relatives were pretty much similar like us and that it was possible to interbreed and that perhaps the speciation event wasn't quite as rigid as we thought in the past. Indeed. Well, thanks very much, Jeffrey. That's Professor Jeffrey Long on the genetic evidence that most people alive today carry a little bit of Neanderthal or potentially another early human species in their genes. This work was presented at the recent meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists annual meeting in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you'd like to read more about any of our news stories, you can find them at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.